I'm confused. There's no sense to how you organize the objects in your fridge. I cannot determine any sense of order. What systems do you use to contain your vegetables, your cans, your jars, your food stains? There are stains. W-A-L-T, it's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Apollo Twin X. And this is the Harrison 32 EQ plug-in emulator that Apollo makes. So if you're listening to this and you're thinking, you know, that sounds kind of like the golden channel that I love to hear Sam speak through in the moon cabin. That is because the eggheads at Apollo have built a reasonably good facsimile of it, and I am grateful to them for doing so. I am not in the moon cabin, as you can probably tell from the resonances in this room. I am in a literal cabin uh, in the Adirondacks, and as a result of that, I am in a state of disbelief that I'm able to make anything approaching a reasonably good signal. Also, as you can hear, uh, my voice is still a little bit messed up because I have not been sleeping as much as I should because of this little thing that I like to call the midnight disease. The condition, not the podcast. I love the podcast. Uh, I also candidly love the condition, even though it is not healthy. As we have covered extensively here on the show, we are sick and we are suffering and we don't think that that's going to change. But we are not afraid. And that is as true for today's guest as it has been for anybody. Mara Wilson is on the show today. And fear, anxiety, and perseverance are major themes in our conversation. Now, if you know the name Mara Wilson, there is a very good chance that you know that name because Mara was a movie star from a very young age. She was Matilda in Matilda. She was the daughter in Mrs. Doubtfire. She was in Miracle on 34th Street. Her face was on the movie poster. And something I I really wanted to do in this episode was not talk to Mara so much about the experience of being a child star, because it's something that she has already talked about a bunch. And chances are, if you're a fan of her work, you already know um, how she feels about that period of her life. And uh, so you're not going to hear a whole lot about it on this episode. What you are going to hear her talk about is what it's like to be an artist in the midst of your career, having had a certain amount of very extreme and very specific success early in that career and wanting to continue to evolve and develop into perhaps a different kind of artist. And for me, a lot of my questions for Mara were informed by a memoir that she wrote called Where Am I Now? And if you haven't read it, I I would really recommend it, Um, not just because 
it's an interesting story from an interesting perspective, but because it's really, really well written. And a lot of times what happens, I think, when you read books written by famous people who have done things that famous people do, and then somebody throws a bunch of money at them to write a book, you can read that their their heart's not really in it, that, that thinking about this as a piece of writing was not their first priority. And that is just so not the case with Where Am I Now? Mara really thought about this as an exercise in personal storytelling with with a very profound series of points to make. And she writes so eloquently about the experience of being an existential adolescent, the experience of being a kid coping with loss, the experience of trying to wrap your head around adult things like uh, sex and relationships when you're being raised by people who aren't super well-equipped to talk to you about those things. And that's not celebrity stuff. That's not child star stuff. That's people stuff. And Mara writes about it like a person. And I think that's important context for the conversation that you're about to hear her and I have, because this is a conversation with someone who had a certain type of personhood foist upon them at a very tender age. And who, as you'll hear, doesn't seem to regret that, doesn't seem to like wish it hadn't happened, but who is now in a place where she is feeling like there are creative callings that she wants to answer that don't necessarily align with that version of personhood that the media industrial complex placed upon her. And I really admire Mara for the work that she's doing now. I'm being somewhat cagey about it because I don't want to give it away because we're going to talk about it in the interview. Um, But what you're about to hear is a conversation with somebody who's had success at the highest levels of success that most of us can imagine and is unsatisfied with that as a defining characteristic for her artistry and her personhood. And I think if Mara can go through what she has gone through and still be interested in pushing her creative boundaries, all of us ought to aspire to the same. Now, the other thing I want to say about Mara is that I became most aware of her work. I saw um, Mrs. Doubtfire when I was a kid, like I'm sure all of you did. I don't even know if I've seen Miracle on 34th Street or Matilda. I actually don't think I have. Um... So it's not like those things are the reason for my interest in Mara's artistry. The thing that she has done that I am in deepest awe of is she played in the Welcome to Night Vale podcast the role of the faceless old woman who lives in your home. And if you don't know that character, the idea is that your house is alive, uh, that it carries a presence that is mysterious and may do things that unnerve you, move your stuff, um, be present in a way that you can feel in an intangible way. 
but that this presence is benevolent. This, this presence wants you to know that many lives have been lived before you and many lives will be lived after. And, and what are you doing with this one that finds you in the fortunate position of being alive in this space? And that idea is so stirring to me. And the, the urgency of that question is so desperately, desperately important for all of us to consider. And I had never really heard in an audio-only experience anyone ask it the way that they did on Welcome to Night Vale with this character. And, and it was Mara's voice that did it. And it, was, and it was Mara that brought her own set of experiences with that question to that performance. And I think about her role on that show all the time. I think about any space that I'm in, in this tiny cabin that Adrian and I have rented for this week of vacation with her family in the Adirondacks. You know, we're staying here this week. There was a different family here last week. There'll be another one here next week. And this cabin has been here for 60 years and it is co- there is a film over top of every surface in here that is the residue of all of the families that spent an entire year looking forward to this one week of getting to swim in a lake and go to the movie theater where they have really good soft serve in town and where you can see first-run movies for six bucks. And that's just the most surface-level possible interpretation of the idea that places wear the humanity that has occupied them. And Mara's performance goes to the levels beneath that type of consideration. And it's impossible not to come away from her work on a character like that feeling differently in the spaces you occupy. And what more could you ask for from an artist? What more? Of course, no episode of The Midnight Disease would be complete without our customary Wild Card Wednesday segment, the segment so wild we had to move it to Friday. This week, a reminder that there are many paths to the uncertain destination we all are seeking. But first, my conversation with Mara Wilson on WALT. Let me start by asking you the question that I uh, love to ask at the beginning of all of these, which Mm -hmm. is, we picture Mara Wilson in the throes of the midnight disease. Draw us a sketch of what you're doing when you are uh, experiencing symptoms of your own particular artistic midnight disease. I have learned that I am a very slow writer. It takes me a long time to write something. And it's not because of writer's block, because I don't believe in writer's block. I don't think that writer's block is a thing. I think that ideas come from anywhere. And I think that 
you know, it, really what it is, is it's uh, it's writer's performance anxiety for me. Ooh, okay. And okay. I think for a lot of other writers, and sometimes for me as well, it's writers putting everything in one basket. Yeah. So I, I'm lucky, though, that I've, in, in the past year or so, I've found a creative outlet that I really love that is is becoming more regular for me, and that is sort of giving me a creative outlet and fulfilling me while I take a very long time to write something. <laughs> yes. I think I may know what you're referring to, and I'm going to guess it has something to do with your currently pinned tweet. Um which is, uh, if you don't mind, I will remind you. Yeah. Just want to do VO and audiobooks for the rest of my life. <laughs> Let me live in a booth. I want to die with cans on. <laughs> yep. It's, it, that's what it is. I, I mean, I've been doing voiceover since I was very young. I think mm-hmm. I was in a Werther's original commercial when I was like five, uh-huh. which is kind of surprising because I had a lisp at the time, but I don't know. It was the 90s. Maybe they thought that cute. Sure. I was on Batman Beyond when I was like 11, 12. Mm-hmm. I, sorry, my cat is being obnoxious and needy, which uh, he does sometimes. That's okay. Uh, he's, that's okay. He's headbutting, he's headbutting my headphones. He's uh, welcome. But, he's welcome. Here. But uh, yeah, this is Theo. He's a sweetheart. He's hey, named after Clive Owen's character in Children of Men, which I'd love to meet <laughs> Alfonso Cuaron and tell him that. Um, I don't know if he'd take it as a compliment. Uh, but anyway, I think that, yeah, I, I mean, VO is really just, it, it, it is my favorite thing. Even when we did little projects at school, you know, we did one where we had to do a pretend advertisement. And I did the the VO for it. I did the narration for it. Narration mm-hmm. was something I always did. They used to ask me to read books to the kids at school. And I remember yeah. the kids getting annoyed because I would forget to show them the pictures. <laughs> so my voice was something that I always loved and, and something that I always, you know, I've, I've always said that my voice is by far the sexiest thing about me. And I and I'm fine with that, honestly. But I think that VO and and audiobooks, I started doing more audiobooks in the past few years and I love it. I love it so much because it's acting. And the thing is, I, I did miss acting. There was a time, I would say probably about 10, 12 years ago, when I would talk about how I I, I actually like kind of went viral for saying that film acting wasn't fun. And at mm. the time, I was in my 20s, and I was very much a control freak mm. because I'd felt very out of control in my life. And I figured that I just kind of wasn't a good actor anymore because I didn't really want to be on camera. Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, some body dysmorphia, you know, feeling judged kind of feeling, I think, sure. fed into that sure. a lot. But after I recorded the audiobook for the Night Vale book, The Faceless Old Woman Who Secretly Lives, Lives in Your Home— yeah. Jeffrey Craner sent me a message and he said, I've listened to it and it's wonderful. You are a great actor. Mm. And I was like, oh, maybe I can be good at this. Maybe I am still right. good at this, just in a different way than I once was. So, so it was like like a way of regaining some agency over your craft. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It definitely was. And it, it felt like it it scratched the acting itch. And what I learned actually, that really surprised me is whenever I do an audiobook, at the end of the day, I am physically drained. Yeah. But in a good way. Well, you're it painting... It feels like I... Yeah. You're, you're like painting... You're, you're transporting the listener to yeah. an invisible world. And are you able to say for yourself what it feels like to do that, like in your body or in your in your mind? Are you conjuring visuals to accompany the text what's your what's your technique I'm not a very visual person okay. I can't imagine something that isn't based on what I've already seen 
Okay. Like I say that my mind isn't really a movie. It's more of a collage. Mm. So I, I think in words. I always have. Mm-hmm. I've, mm-hmm. I've always, and, and I, I hear most of my thoughts, I mm. would say. And I remember saying that to my sister once, and she said, that sounds exhausting. But, <laughs> and you have to keep in mind that I, I came from a very talkative mother, and mm-hmm. I had three older brothers and a little sister. Yeah. So I spent a lot of my childhood eavesdropping. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. on my mom on the phone with the other PTA moms and and with you know my older brothers talking about you know Magic the Gathering or whatever it was that they were into at the time and Mm -hmm. so when I was acting as a child I was able to read a line the way that I thought it should be said Mm. or or you know and then and then be able to repeat it the exact same way over and over again Right. So, so when I'm reading a book now, a lot of times I hear the words and I hear the words that they're, when it's dialogue, I hear the way that it will be said in my head. Yeah. And I usually do visualize it somewhat, but it's usually based on something, someplace I've already been. Like, okay. and, and this is for everything. Like, I remember the first time I read Patti Smith's Just Kids. Uh-huh. I, you know, she talks about living in this tiny New York apartment with Robert Mapplethorpe. And that was my old apartment that I used to live on on St. Mark, Mark's Place. Uh-huh. You, like, swapped in your Exactly. Your and space. I was doing yeah. I was doing a book recently about uh, a, a mother, a, like, a horror novel about postpartum depression, mm. kind of. And the house that they lived in, that the house that the couple lived in with, you know, the new baby was a house I used to babysit in. Yeah. So this is going to sound like sort of an arcane question, but— when you're, because this is fascinating to me, actually, that you are putting specific places that you have a relationship with in your mind and then fitting the words into that that place as you're doing the reading. Yeah. Um, is that something that you have planned ahead of time or does it occur to you in the moment as you get in the booth and start reading? It occurs to me in the moment, usually. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. really it's more of a feeling, I uh-huh. think. Yes. Yeah. Okay. That makes total sense. That makes total sense. Can I go back then to this? I'm I'm also quite fascinated by this thing you said about being very young and eavesdropping on all these conversations that were going on around you. Yeah. And then that that made it so that when you started acting, you had what must have seemed to directors and like casting directors this preternatural ability to nail takes because yeah I mean I think that there are a lot of there are different kinds of child actors I think for me there tend to be the kind of over emotional ones and there tend mm-hmm. to be the stoics and uh-huh. I think you see a lot of very over emoting in in like children's television like uh-huh. I remember and and that's because it's didactic it's like yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna be pretentious here and say like it's almost Brechtian <laughs> but because it is it's meant to it's meant to educate and so yes. it's a lot like my mom, and I remember my mom hated that. My mom would always say, no Barney. And, and then there's also sort of the stoic, you know, recitative, you know, kind of kind of acting. And I think that I was more like that. Sometimes yeah. that can appear a little wooden. But, True. but and, and I don't think that I was like the best child actor ever. I don't think I was that great. I just think that I did have an ability that casting directors and directors looked at and were like, oh, okay, we can mm-hmm. work with this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the the other thing that jumps out to me about you saying that that that's a a thing you remember doing early on is eavesdropping on people, being able to repeat, uh, being able to hear the way a line might be said before you've even said it, yeah. is that it then makes sense to me 
that you are rediscovering this joy of acting through a purely oral means of expression because in a way yeah. it's tapping back into the first acting skill you ever developed. It is. And it's funny because, you know, the the way that I, I always wanted to be a writer. Mm-hmm. My favorite thing to do when I was a kid was to, you know, jump up on the couch and mm-hmm. say, I have a story to tell. And uh-huh. I would start telling these stories and the stories never ended. <laughs> It got to the point where my brothers would have to cut me off when mm-hmm. I started a story. You know, I'd say, I have a story. Once upon a time, and they'd clap, and they go, oh, good story, good story, because otherwise it could go <laughs> we know on where for this all is summer. Going, Mara. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was, it was, it was epic poetry. Uh-huh. So I, I loved doing that. I loved telling stories, and it was really kind of all that I ever wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of parlayed that into acting. But even when I was acting, between takes, between shots, I would be in my trailer writing books. yeah. I would take, yeah. like, s- extra script paper, and I would take that, and I would write and draw these little stories on them. Do you remember any of those? Do you remember oh, yeah. the details of any of them? My magnum opus was uh, was The Adventures of Lee Marie Summers, which was a, a young girl detective. Uh-huh. And she was solving mysteries, and there was, like, some kind of, like, woman terrorist. And, and of course, this is, like, the summer that, like— that like uh, Mission Impossible came out. And the thing was, at the time, this was right after my mother had died. Mm. And so I wrote a story about the the boy in the cast. I can't even remember what his name was. I'll call him Jack. Jack's mother had died in the script yeah. and had been killed by this terrorist woman, you know, who ran an evil corporation or something. Kind of interesting that I made her a woman. But there was nothing huh. more evil to me than killing somebody's mother. Yeah. So I, I, that was kind of how I worked it out, I mm-hmm. think, was working on this piece. Well, I'm, I'm so glad you're talking about this because something that I find really captivating in your book, Where Am I Now?, is you write about yourself as a kid wanting to tell stories as you described. And then you, there's this really amazing and kind of heartbreaking scene where you've just found out where babies come from. And yeah. you are, I think you're in the makeup chair in your in your trailer or something, and you oh, start yeah. talking about t- it. <laughs> yeah. And then you are told, no, 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 Mara, you, we do not talk about that. You cannot yeah. talk about this. And it makes me wonder, I guess, because like, I know later in life you found your way to doing personal storytelling um, yeah. on stage. And it made me wonder, like, what impact did that moment have with your desire to to tell and write stories about your own experiences? Um, I could imagine it making you feel like, oh, I'm I'm not supposed to tell stories about real things. How do I deal with this? Yeah, I mean, I think that I've always struggled with what is public and what is private. I think I mm. especially had that struggle on Twitter. Sometimes I think mm. I think back to the way that I was on Twitter five, ten years ago, and I get really embarrassed. The same mm. way that I would when I thought back to, you know, asking, asking, you know, the the makeup and hair people uh, if they'd done it, if they'd had sex. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I I think that uh, I think that I was very, you know, I, I kind of struggled with it because I grew up very publicly. And that was something that would give me, and sometimes still gives me, like, panic attacks. Like, what do people know about me? Have mm-hmm. I given too much away? That's something that I think that I struggled with, was the the idea of, 
if you show who you are to somebody, they might not like you. And and right. I, I actually think that there's a thing that I'm not sure if this is something that we've talked about, like as a society, if there's been discourse about this. And I've wanted to write about it, but I kind of feel like it's a topic that is too big. I feel a little bit like this, like people see this a little bit with Prince Harry. Mm. I think there's almost like kind of an uncanny valley or sort of like a reverse uncanny valley of getting to know somebody. Like mm. there's there's some kind of, if you know a little bit about somebody, you don't really have an opinion on them one way or the other, but you might like them because you know mm-hmm. if you know a little bit about them, you might like them. If you know a lot about them, but you don't actually know them, I don't think you will like them anymore. For me, I would go to school or summer camp or something like that, and I would go to a new school, and I would be popular for about a week. And then huh. they would learn that I was actually kind of a nerd. And yes. like, <laughs> yes. you know, they would they would be like, oh, you, you know, your favorite band is They Might Be Giants. And <laughs> your parents don't allow you to wear makeup. And you're, you're you know, you, you're like, you're a tomboy and you're, but not in like a cool tomboy way. You're just kind mm-hmm. of a loser. And they would all kind of wander off. And that's the thing, I think. And it's the same reason why, like, Sam, at what point do you think like, people usually break up in a new relationship? Ooh, what a great question. Um, I think it's usually, uh, I don't know, like maybe it's the fourth or fifth date and they yeah. see somebody be rude to a waiter or something. Yeah, I. it's it's like the three-month rule. Yes, okay, okay. Yeah, uh-huh. I would say about, I, I would say probably like, like if you're dating somebody, there's like that kind of first like rush of joy. And yeah. then like about three months in uh-huh. is where okay. most of my relationships that haven't lasted have, you know, that haven't lasted long, I should say, have ended at about that point. Because mm. yeah, that's when you see where somebody, that's where you see who somebody really is. Right. You so hit the limit of that, your fantasy version of them. Exactly. And I think that we see that a lot these days with celebrities. I think that and I I can think of celebrities I know who I held in like really high esteem who then kind of came crashing down for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the thing. I think that we see that maybe they do bad things because most people do do bad things sometimes in their life. Right. And we we sort of seize upon that because we don't have what we have with the people that we actually know and love. I mean, and I, I talked about this. You, you don't have that basis. And if you don't have that solid base with somebody, mm-hmm. then you don't actually like them. Because yeah. you will excuse something in a person that you love or even a person that you like a lot mm-hmm. if if you have a connection with them. Because underlying, you know, the social ties are everything. But the Internet has given us a way to know people without actually having social ties. Yes. Well, this makes me think of two things. One is... I think this is particularly true when it's a famous person uh, who is an artist because yeah. it, it is very difficult for most people to recognize. I mean, this is sort of what this whole show is about. It's very yeah. difficult for, for people to reckon with the fact that the best art often comes from the cracks and breaks inside of people. The messy, irreconcilable, difficult things about people are usually what prompt them to uh, channel that tension into whatever art they do, and, and that is what makes us love them, but it doesn't change the fact that they have those fissures inside of them. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always talked about how I thought Dorothy Parker would be a fun guest at a dinner party. 
Yeah. But I don't know if I would want to let her stay in my house for very long. I think, oh my God. you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. she'd yeah. probably be breaking stuff. Yes, yes. She'd be the friend who would, you know, borrow $20,000 from you and you'd never see her again. <laughs> yeah, she'd she'd vomit onto your couch and not clean it up. Yeah, and she'd know? feel terrible about it. She would feel terrible about it, but she'd be blackout drunk and yeah. she'd be, yeah. And, and you, you'd just have to be like, okay, here she is. Uh, you know, there's a story of like Hans Christian Andersen crashing with Charles Dickens for a while and then Dickens getting sick of him. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I think that that kind of stuff, you know, that that kind of stuff happens because if you don't, you know, this is my sociology minor talking, social ties, I think, are the most important thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Because if you mm-hmm. think of like some celebrity who cheated on, you know, their wife, their husband, their partner, mm-hmm. you'll be like, my God, what a dirtbag. How could you ever do that? Yeah. But everybody has a friend who's cheated on somebody. Yeah. Or a lot of people have been cheated on or have cheated themselves, yeah. mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. I never have, but I'm, you know. <laughs> uh, no, but I. But that's why we're able to forgive, like, a lot of people are able to forgive, like, racist family members and right. and people right. who've who've hurt them because there there's a social tie. And I wish we would remember that. I wish we would remember that you don't know famous people. You don't know people on the internet. Yes. Well, as you are alluding to, our parasocial... Uh, membrane with folks that we admire is thinner than it's ever been, and it's in danger of disappearing entirely. Um, yeah, which is why I've I've been a little bit less off Twitter because I'm kind of like, look, people are going to dislike me. People have always disliked me because people dislike people. You know, I don't think I'm a particularly, you know, I'm not, you know, Madonna in 1985. I'm not exactly, you know... <laughs> shocking people, but I'm, I'm definitely, you know, some people are going to like me, some people aren't, but I'm thinking to myself, why am I giving people more ammunition to dislike me? Yeah. Well, to bring it back to that story that you were kind of telling about when you would meet people and they would be really into like meeting Mara Wilson and then be like, wait, Mara's kind of a nerd. Um, (laughs) And I think you've written about this. You said like, you know, a lot of that was motivated on their parts by being like, oh, we're going to party with Matilda. And then they realize that, well, they don't realize this, but it seems like the truth is you were so good at inhabiting the characters that you played in part because you were a bookish kid. You loved stories, and that's that's what empowered your ability to play those parts, and it's not like that was going to go away. <laughs> yeah, it was. That that was who I was, but it, it, you know, it's interesting because, I mean, Matilda is a bookish character who uses her powers, but... I think that people always just kind of take the most superficial message away from things. And it's unfortunate, but it's the way that it is. You know, the Wolf of Wall Street effect, finance bros cheering it on (laughs) but uh, and and not getting what the actual point of the movie was. You know, that's Mm -hmm. something that happens. So I heard a lot about like, Matilda, use your magic powers on me. And, you know, me wanting to be like, but it's allegorical. (laughs) (laughs) It's about about the power of knowledge. It's about the power of channeling your anger into something. And and your your you know your extreme feelings into something and that's mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. what it really is but yeah but kids aren't going to get that and so i think mm-hmm. it was like oh cool you know and and people would tell me like oh i wanted to be matilda but then i think there was this sort of surprise because they were like i i thought i wanted to be matilda but you you are matilda and you're kind of lame <laughs> or not lame you're you're you are matilda and you're kind of boring <laughs> right 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 well 
the other thing this makes me think about is, and I think you've you've spoken about this in in some interviews that you've done in recent years. Um, so, and you know, let me know if it, this feeling is out of date. But mm-hmm. I think another thing that's tricky about developing this affinity for actors, especially actors who start acting when they're very young, yeah. is your the job in many ways is to people please. It's to yes. say the lines the way that you think the, the grown-ups want you to do it, and you're rewarded for showing up in a way that is not necessarily authentic to who you are. Um, yes. And that that can have this extraordinarily detrimental effect in your own life, I would think, which I'm more interested in hearing you speak about. But I think that can also lead to this phenomenon you're describing of people being like, oh, you're not the version of you that was manufactured for my entertainment? <laughs> this is insane. Yeah, I, you yep. know, people kind of had this idea of who I was, and it never who, was who I was, but I always hated that I could was disappointing them. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that I, I, and I could see it in their eyes sometimes because I didn't, I was, you know, I was not particularly cool, and I had a very prolonged, awkward adolescence, and so mm-hmm. I wasn't, you know, there were child actors who, who, were just, you know, beautiful the whole way through. You know, they puberty was very kind to them, and I wasn't one of those kids. And I, I would see, like, the disappointment in their eyes when they, like, looked at me and looked at what I was wearing, and I would just hate myself because disappointing mm. people was the worst thing. It was my yeah. biggest fear. And I still look back on the things that I did in my 20s, and there were jobs I took and friendships I made and relationships that I got into because I didn't think that I could say no. Yeah. And eventually I walked away, but a lot of the times I walked away from those in a very destructive way. Yeah. Because I didn't know how else to get out other than to just burn it all the fuck down. Yeah. So, and now I I, I look back on these things and, you know, sometimes I'm just like, sometimes I'm like, okay, that was a destructive, you know, romantic relationship that I'm very glad I got out of and I will never, I never ever want to see that person again. Mm -hmm. But there's others where I feel like I want to say... I'm sorry for the way that it ended. I don't yeah. maybe think that we should work together again or be friends again, but right, right. I'm very sorry for the way that it ended, but I didn't know how to get out. Plenty more to come with Mara Wilson right here on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
something else I'm interested in that's, I think, of a piece of with, with all this is in your book, you also write about coming to what felt like an inescapable conclusion in your, like, adolescence and teens that the world was corrupt and that there was this... I think it's in connection with you tell the story about going to camp and um, people are like doing drugs and making out and stuff. And yeah, (laughs) this sense that, you know, you can people are always going to let you down. They're always going to disappoint you. And it's best to just kind of make your peace with that. Um, I mean, I think that I think that all teenagers come to that realization. mm -hmm, I think mm -hmm. that one of the biggest things about being a teenager is that you People, ideally, people put rules in place for you to protect you. I think you get older and you look back on it and you think, you think, well, they lied to me. They didn't tell me the whole truth. And you yeah. feel disrespected and, and disenchanted and frustrated. And I was so angry when I was a teenager. I was angry because I didn't feel like I had control. I was angry that my mother died. I was yeah. angry at my mother's side of the family for being abusive. I was angry at religion. I was angry at my my stepmother who was trying to push a different religion on me. Mm-hmm. I was angry about society. I was angry about the fact that I didn't believe the same things politically as my father, but I was afraid to tell him that because mm-hmm. I was afraid that I would lose his love. I was angry because I was fighting really hard to be heterosexual and I was losing that battle. Mm-hmm. I was fighting because I wanted to keep believing in God, but I didn't know if I could. Yeah. And I was angry at everybody around me, but I was mostly angry at myself because I was angry. I felt like I was letting everybody down all of the time. And I would say probably like, probably up until maybe even my late 20s, like eight times out of 10 when I cried, it was because I was angry with myself and I was disappointed Mm -hmm. with myself. Mm -hmm. And I'd always been kind of a dreamy kid who was bad with time and getting places on time and Mm -hmm. oversleeping and getting lost in my own imagination. And I also think that that was reinforced by being on film sets and having everything kind of done for me. Right, right. (laughs) That, That will also do that. And I think that, In college, I think two things happened. One was that our teacher said that we had to come back from winter break with a monologue about what had happened. And what happened to me was that my luggage was lost. Okay. That's a cool assignment. It was a cool assignment. uh, But my luggage was lost because I was... um, It was like the early days of travel websites. And so my Mm -hmm. dad had unknowingly booked me on a flight where I had like one American Airlines flight and one, I don't know, Delta flight or United flight or something. Uh Uh And because of that, they wouldn't bring my bags over. So my bags got stuck at a, yeah, got stuck (laughs) on Christmas Eve. A mysterious island in the Pacific somewhere, wherever Yes, it did. It got stuck in Florida. (laughs) And so, you know, and then, and then a few days, and my parents were like, well, you probably have lost your, your luggage. Mm. And my parents were like, maybe just tell them that you lost more expensive things than you actually did because that way you'll get a new wardrobe. And I was like, are you guys encouraging me to commit insurance fraud? This is insane. Yeah. And, and also it had to be, it was funny because I wasn't the type of person I never, I didn't have a lot of expensive things, but I also, 
you know, and I'd also like gone through like my teenage, like Eastern California and Eastern religions phase where I'm just like, possessions are nothing, who cares? <laughs> but then I had to face the fact that I, when I lost my suitcase, I lost, you know, a bunch of things. And like, were the people going through it and laughing at my like Gilmore Girls DVDs and backgammon set? And <laughs> I, I eventually did get it back. So I wrote a monologue about that and everybody was laughing. And my, mm. my friend was like, oh, you remind me of David Rakoff. Mm. You could do that. You could write something about this. Exactly. Exactly. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'm a David Rakoff, David Sedaris kind of person. Maybe I can write more about my life. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that a little bit and, and making it funny. And then my second year, something changed my life even further. And it was that I took a playwriting class. Ah, okay, okay. Well, okay, so this is very interesting to me to to explore with you because, well, first I just want to say I appreciate what you said about this sense of feeling angry at yourself and worrying about disappointing people um, because I, it just helps me understand, you know, I think a lot of times when people walk away from things in a sort of burn-it-down way— there's a sense of like, why, what is this person? Are they just like a chaos junkie? Like, like what's yeah. that about? But hearing you describe it, it's like, no, you have this simultaneous awareness that there is, there are limits to the myths and rules that we are raised with. Um, and you also have this training that you're supposed to try to follow those rules and meet people, uh, you know, yeah. meet people's expectations all the time. And so, of course, those things are going to come into collision at a certain point. And the part of you that is like, see, I, I knew this was all bullshit. <laughs> I knew <laughs> I, I should have spoken of, up for my needs. Yeah. Well, I call it the bitch paradox because I think that the way that I became known as a brat or a bitch was I first struggled really hard to be a good girl mm-hmm. and to mm-hmm. please. Mm-hmm. But inevitably, I couldn't. And so what did I do? I kind of lashed out and I got yeah. angry and I pushed people away. Yes. So yes. A- and I think and then you get you get angry with yourself and, and, and sad about that. And so then you go back into trying to please and trying to be the good girl. Yeah. I fully believe that there are a lot of good girls who are also bitches or a lot of bitches who are former good girls. And right. people have been right. calling me a bitch since I was in middle school. Like, I don't find comedians who are like, I'm telling it like it is to be funny because I'm like, look, I have that cynicism in myself and I have to fight it. You have to learn to sort of use your powers for good, I think, if you're an angry person. Yes. You have to channel that into something. And I think that for me, I channeled that into writing. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say to kind of circle back to that, you are also describing what is so connective and resonant about the writings of David Rakoff and the writings of David Sedaris is there is, there's a self-deprecation in it. There is a celebration of the ridiculous. And there is also, when they are at their most honest, I think, an anger. There is an anger there, but it's different. It's not, it's not just, I'm just telling it like it is, which I think we admire in America, but I think it's, I think it's better not to be the kind of person who just tells it like it is. I think it's better to, to, you know, it's, it's like, you don't eat coffee grounds. You don't eat tea leaves. <laughs> you don't chew on them. You let them steep. You let yes. it filter. That's the thing. Spoken like a true writer, Mara. That's a, that's a perfect, <laughs> that's a perfect, that's a perfect, that's a perfect metaphor. The um, way, thank you. The way I found myself back into writing though, and, and I, I, I want to make this point before we go on, is I found it mm-hmm. through the way people talk. I would try to write fiction, 
but my prose was always very stilted. And then I remember writing writing a play and a friend of mine read it and she said, this is the first play you've ever written? And huh? I was like, yeah, other than like some fun stuff in school, but nothing that was ever performed. And she was like, this is really good. Hmm. And we had a director come in to talk to us and and read, look at our things. And I showed him a play that I was working on at the time called Sheeple. And he was flipping through it and he said, and Sheeple was about teenage boys because that's what I grew up with. I grew up with this Greek chorus of teenage boys in my life of my three older brothers who were very smart, smart, smart asses. Like if Ferris Bueller got all A's Mm -hmm. and, and then they had all their friends around. So teenage boys, you know, that, that was like what the world that I knew. So I wrote a play about teenage boys and the director was flipping through it and he said, I've got to tell you, your dialogue is just, and I waited and waited and waited. And he said, this could go either way. <laughs> yes. And he said, phenomenal. Uh, and I burst out laughing and the teacher burst out laughing and she turned to him because he was her friend. He, she turned to him and said, don't ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but dialogue was really all I wanted to write for a while. And I mm. think it was because I knew, I knew what people sounded like. Mm-hmm. because I'd been eavesdropping for so long. Well, I have to imagine, too, that as a kid in overwhelmingly adult spaces, you must have spent oh, yeah. a, a lot of time around people <laughs> saying stuff that they thought you weren't going to pick up on, but that you definitely were. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. That happened all the time. It was me just kind of wide-eyed listening mm-hmm. into this stuff. and mm-hmm. And... It was very subtle things sometimes, but also sometimes it was just, oh, I really should not have heard that. Uh And I also think that, and it's possible that it came from growing up as an actor, but I'm often able to understand where people are coming from. Mm. Even if I don't agree with them, if I disagree with them profoundly, I can think to myself, okay, well, if I grew up in those circumstances with those kinds of things, I could see why they might believe these things. Well, it goes back to the the thing you said about when people have affairs. Obviously, betraying someone's trust is a categorically bad thing. Yeah. But it is also the kind of categorically bad thing that we all have some relationship with in our own lives and understand that there are particular circumstances around it and that that's where the interesting bits of humanity come from, not just... Casting a, a, a direct judgment on somebody and moving on. I remember doing an interview with Adam Conover a few years ago, and he said, everybody is literally doing the best they can. Yeah. Because everybody is doing what they can with up to their own abilities and their mm-hmm. own <laughs> experiences mm-hmm. and their own traumas and their own joys and their own interests. And, and everybody is trying, I think, right. in some way. So, and that's such a beautiful place to start in is. a dynamic with somebody. Even if... They don't, even if ultimately, you know, they don't reward your good faith in, in yeah. trying to meet them there, That then it, you know, becomes a different story. But it is a kind of a, a, a bold and fearless thing and a revolutionary thing to, to try to meet everybody there. It's also, I mean, it's exhausting. And honestly, yes. it overwhelms me at times. But I think that I'm kind of the opposite of a misanthrope. Like, I, I don't know what the opposite <laughs> of a misanthrope is. I think humanist, I suppose. So how do you think that innate ability to really kind of do a kind of deep listening um, mm-hmm. is, is sort of what you're describing, I think. 
How do you think you were able to channel that into writing dialogue and and writing characters for the stage? Like, what do you think it was that was showing up in your dialogue that is related to this? I loved the idea that I could write dialogue and somebody would bring it to life on stage. And so I think for me, it was kind of like these this is my love for people by by, you know, making them say words that actually sound like real life and by by embodying these people that are based on people that I know and and coming to life. And I still think there really isn't anything cooler than that, than, you know, people coming and people coming alive and revealing who they are through their words, people revealing who they are by the language that they speak, I think kind of says everything. Can I ask you where you, because you are a person who would be overwhelmingly justified in losing faith in humanity because of (laughs) various experiences that I've heard you describe, you know, like being harassed by fans and having narratives grafted onto your life from a very early age that did not match up with who you were. And I know that's only the tip of the iceberg. Um, So if you could speculate, what do you think has enabled you to preserve this level of empathy and generosity of spirit? (laughs) I think that... It's funny because I don't think I'm seen as a very open person. I think I'm seen as a very sardonic person. Hmm. I and and the good thing about knowing some of the worst people you've ever known when you were a child is it kind of <laughs> inoculates you because hmm. you can be like, oh, you're just being like this person that I knew when you know when I was a kid, and I recognize in that in you, and that makes me think, okay, that I should probably stay away from you. Uh, and not give you what you want. But, I mean, it also means, though, that for a long time, those people will feel, everybody you meet who reminds you of those people, the worst people you will meet, will feel like home. (laughs) So that's the problem, too. Yeah. But I think that it's exhausting, and for me, it's too easy. Mm. I see it as like, I see it as sort of like lapsing into almost like a teenage way of thinking about things. It's wow. too simple. It's too easy to be cynical and judgmental. And so I don't want to do that because uh, because I'm a perfectionist and I never take the easy way out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm I'm really moved hearing you say that. Um, Thank you. That it's too easy to go through to be that dismissive. Um, and it suggests to me that perhaps lurking in that sentiment somewhere is the idea that if you don't make that easy choice, you might, it it might enable you to receive some greater experience that's on the other side of, of persevering in the, in the face of cynicism. Is that accurate or? I think so. I mean, I, I am not a person that believes very easily in the supernatural. I think that even when I believed in God, I struggled with belief in God. Mm-hmm. I I don't think that I'm that kind of person. I, I remain sort of agnostic about the idea of any gods or ghosts or things like that. But the people that I don't understand are the people who don't have any kind of searching. I don't understand nihilism. Mm. And I don't understand people who have never really cared. So... I wanted to ask you a little bit about, and I'm really glad you brought her up, um, the faceless old woman who secretly lives in your home. Because 
This is a character that I think, for me, was a real mind volcano. (laughs) 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 For me, because like so many things on Night Vale, it was was a tongue-in-cheek... Uh, horror light idea that was actually connected to something extremely profound. This And for me, that was this sense that I have had since I was a little kid that our houses know more than we do. Like, that's an idea that I, it, it's, it's almost hard for me to talk about it without crying. And you, I know obviously you weren't <laughs> necessarily thinking the same thoughts as me when you were reading that part, but it felt like you in your performance of this character, we're tapped into something something quite profound. And I, I'm just curious to learn from you how you approached that role and what you connected with about it. Yeah, I think it's funny because I remember being on some kind of panel and somebody asking if we were like our characters in Night Vale. And I said, yeah, in some ways, I mean, I'm nosy as hell. <laughs> and Desiree Birch was drinking a glass of uh, she, she who plays uh, Mayor Pamela Winchell. She was like drinking a bottle of water and she did a spit take at that. <laughs> I, I, but yeah, I think that for me, it was about watching and listening people, listening to people and yeah. the little things that they do. I think that also I was the kind of person who was always scared, but in some ways wanted to be be scary because there was something powerful in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I kind of did go into my sort of observer mode to play that role. But the thing about her is that she clearly has very strong opinions on people's lives. Yeah. Like the first episode, she's complaining about the way that somebody – you know, mess like the, the way that somebody sets up their fridge, she doesn't yes. like it. And yes. she, she tells people that they need to change their sheets more often. And, yeah. and it's, it's, she punishes them in strange ways and she lights stuff on fire. And it's sort of like, she has her own code of morality. Like mm-hmm. I remember people were like writing like slash fan fiction and stuff with them. And they were like, what do we think the faceless old woman's sexuality is? And it was like, it's not like watching people have sex. I don't think that that would be interesting to her. Uh It's probably like, if anything, like maybe she gets some kind of like joy out of like watching them put, you know, their recycling in the wrong place or something like that. (laughs) And we laughed about that. I mean, eventually, you know, Joseph and Jeffrey wrote this beautiful backstory for her. And she is like a character who's had, you know, traditional romantic relationships in her past. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, a lot of that was just, you know, being this character who is aloof and doesn't care, but has also lost so much and experienced so much. And, And how does that weigh on her, I think, is something that I think about a lot. And to be an aloof person, I think... A lot of times you you kind of have to have gone through a lot because mm-hmm. you needed to have at some point chosen to remove yourself. I think aloofness and I think cynicism are often kind of a callous. Mm-hmm. They're they're covering up something that's tender underneath. It's so interesting. You know, I mean, this is exactly what we were just talking about. This idea that, you know, you more than most other people would have earned the right in your life to actually be aloof, to actually have kind of given up faith in humanity. And, you know, I went back and listened before our conversation today to that first moment where we meet the faceless old woman. And I'm yeah. so happy you said what you said because I was because I was trying to cast back in my mind, like, what did I connect with so much about this? And it's that it's exactly what you said. She 
she's worried about you, the the person whose home she lives in. She's like, why? You should make your bed. Like, you should, (laughs) you know, like, and, and, and you should be aware of what's around you. I'm here. You could see me if you wanted to. That might also go back to the fact that, like, I, the maternal figures in my life were always very tough. Mm. I had some who were, like, very mm. kind, but, like, my actual mother was a very tough woman. And my yeah. stepmother was a very tough woman. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember coming home from college and my stepmother said to me, uh, what happened to your face? Why do you have so many zits? Oh. <laughs> and I said, I said, nice to see you too. But yeah. to her, I think she honestly did think like she was, she was like, you need to change your face wash. Why are you, you yeah. know, what happened? And what happened was that I moved to a different climate right. and I was in college under a lot of stress. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, but, but I think for her, she genuinely thought she was helping me like, oh, well, we need to do something about this. And yeah. And I think the faceless old woman is kind of like that. Mara, this is exactly what you've been talking about since the beginning of this conversation, this this idea that sometimes people have good intentions that just come out in yes. broken and imperfect ways. Yeah. And, you know, I, I do think sometimes I can't be my open and honest self with everybody. I do have to be aloof sometimes because I yeah. think that that's about boundaries. And I think that I think that is a defense mechanism. I don't think it's always a negative thing, though. Yeah. Yeah. We're coming to the end of our time, and I, as a closing, I'm, I'm just interested to know what would you say as an artist feels like the next exciting thing to aim for? I mean, I definitely want to write more. Like I said, I write slowly, and rewriting is hard for me. I say writing is sex and rewriting is childbirth. But <laughs> I, I think that... Uh, I'm going to put that one next to the coffee metaphor as uh, another yeah. excellently stated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rewriting is is miserable, extremely painful. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've always wanted to do is is learn about pe- other people and share other people's stories. Mm-hmm. I've I would love to do documentary. I've been mm. thinking about doing radio documentary and film documentary, you mm. know, for years now. Well. Speaking as somebody who has made a number of radio documentaries, I would just say uh, eavesdropping is basically the principal skill <laughs> exactly. in that work. So you've got a huge leg up there if that is the direction that you decide to go in. And and you would love it because it's, um, it's eavesdropping that you were invited to do. Exactly. You know? And um, I do think that there is a lot of that is sort of finding the 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 like the kernel of something the thing that you know somebody does somebody says or does that reveals so much more about them oh exactly I think that is my favorite thing in one of the pieces that i'm i'm is going to come out soon actually i share a story in there about how i had a friend who was kind of a wild child growing up mm-hmm. and i called her once and we got into a conversation about whether you keep peanut butter in the fridge or in the cupboard <laughs> And she said that she said, and we grew up with like the natural peanut butter, which you keep in the fridge. Mm-hmm. So I was like, yeah, I put it in the fridge. And she's like, yeah, but then it gets kind of hard. And I was like, yeah, that's true. It does. And she says, I usually put it in the cabinet unless it doesn't have a lid, in which case I'll put it in the fridge. <laughs> and I was like, unless it doesn't have a lid. Yep, there we go. And she said, yeah. <laughs> what focaccia peanut butter are we talking yeah, about here? Yeah, <laughs> what kind of peanut butter? 
trumpet are we talking about? And how does the lid go off it, go missing so often yeah. that you, that this is just a common thing that you say to somebody and you don't think is weird. Mm-hmm. And like, I grew up in a chaotic household, but we always knew where the peanut butter lid was. Mm-hmm. And if we didn't, we would at least have put some aluminum foil over it. <laughs> So that made me think, yeah, aluminum foil, rubber band, you know, that's a makeshift lid right there. Yeah. But that kind of revealed to me, I was like, oh, there is so much about her home life that I do not know. There is so much about her home life that I I must not know. I must not understand because it's got to be pretty chaotic if this isn't even a thing that you at 13, 14 don't think is weird. Yeah. And I love that. Yeah. I love those moments. You're describing the difference, I think, between, and I know this is a controversial show, so um, acknowledged, it is one of my favorites, but I'm a huge fan of S-Town, the podcast S-Town. Oh, yeah. The thing for me that, you know, it's the difference between Brian Reed recognizing that this is a story about, um, about John's obsession with climate change and clocks, not this alleged murder. Um, yeah, it's it's little things. Little things are revealed, I think, about people and you and you kind of think, oh, this is what this is actually about. Yeah. So many times we're fighting about things that we're not actually fighting about. Yeah, I think so many times we're talking about things and we're not actually talking about them. Mm. Well, Mara, this has been a, a truly enlightening conversation. And I thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and for uh for letting me ramble on, as as I've said, I have a tendency to do that. <laughs> that no, that's I'm I'm here to listen. So, <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm wondering what's what's the little piece of myself that I revealed today that says everything about me. There's always <laughs> one. What what is my peanut butter jar lid? <laughs> can I say? Can I say what I think it is? If you want to, you can. I I, I mean I will say. I was joking, o- but go ahead. <laughs> o- o- only for me, you know, in in as somebody who has followed your work for a long time, um, and it, you know, was very excited to talk to you about these things. Um, for me, the thing that you said uh, that changes the way that I think about you as an artist is the is, is the thing about eavesdropping. Um, yeah, because I think I have had a perception of you as somebody who, for, again, extremely valid reasons, um, has had to put up walls uh, around how much of yourself you're going to share with people, and that's all extremely valid. But the, the piece that I hadn't considered is the depth of listening that that enables you to do, yeah. is that there's a way that in, in making yourself disappear a little bit, it doesn't mean you're closing yourself off from experience. It means you're just stepping into the the backdrop a little bit, but that that that's not an inactive choice. Um, yeah, I mean, I I sometimes I've got to you know I think there's a part of me that wants to be the lead singer, but there's also a part of me that is like hmm, maybe I should be the bassist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward to uh, the bass lines that you write. <laughs> Yeah, that's that. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I yeah, and I think that you're right. I think that I'm still learning what is public, what is private. You know, that's something that I failed a lot at, at in my 20s. And it's something that I'm, I'm trying to to do here. But yeah, sometimes sometimes you, you've got to listen and you'll be surprised what you learn when you listen.
How you doing? Um, I'm wondering, do you have any maps of Tibet? Probably somewhere around here. Have you been downstairs? Not yet. Uh, take a look downstairs. I, I got so many maps, I don't know where they're all at, but I, uh, <laughs> I've, I've got them somewhere. The Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Mara Wilson for being my guest this week. If you would like to read Mara's wonderful book, Where Am I Now? Check the links in the show notes, and you can also find a link there to her new memoir, Good Girls Don't. Links to both of those in the show notes for this episode. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins, and if you have thoughts on anything you've heard on The Midnight Disease, I would love to hear from you. Send me an email to midnight at walt.fm. We'll be back next week with another great conversation. And in the meantime, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. I'll talk to you then. And until then, keep driving, Midnight Cruisers. You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.